Thank you, Miss Sherry, for using your gifts and your heart for the Lord. And thank you for blessing us this morning. Would you stand with me as Bo Bayless comes this morning to read our scripture? When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we may be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. This is the word of the Lord from James 1, 13 through 18. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Yes, sir. I want to begin this morning by talking about a legal term which has become common slang in the legal world today. It's the term a Twinkie defense, if you've ever heard this before. A Twinkie defense is a way to shift the blame from a person who commits a crime to some sort of a mental impairment that's been affected by a substance. And the history of the Twinkie defense goes back to 1979 in San Francisco when a politician was on trial and had been accused of first-degree murder. So he was being charged with first-degree murder. And this is going to sound like a politician's defense, okay? The lawyer for the defendant put a psychiatrist on the stand who claimed that on the day of the murder, Dan White, that was the name of the politician and the defendant, Dan White had overconsumed sugar throughout the day, especially Twinkies, to the point that the Twinkies, the sugar, had exacerbated his mental impairment and caused him to commit this crime, not on his own will, but the Twinkies made me do it. That was his defense. And believe it or not, the jury was convinced, and rather than being convicted of first-degree murder, Dan White was given less than five years for involuntary manslaughter the Twinkies made me do it. This is the Twinkie defense. This has me rethinking whether we should give out so many donuts before we come to worship. If sugary treats can lead a person to murder. But the Twinkie defense is nothing new. And it's just as common today as it's ever been before for a person who's in the wrong to blame others. And for a person who has done wrong to make excuses. For a person who is being accused of doing wrong to go after those who are exposing his offenses or her offenses rather than simply taking and acknowledging the blame for the wrong that's been done. It's just as common today as it's ever been for there to be countless ways to say, it's not my fault. And as we continue on in James's letter this morning, as the Holy Spirit speaks through him as he wrote to Christians who were scattered all over the world we pick up on another idea which is when all else all else fails why not just blame God 
If you don't want to take blame for yourself, if you can't find any other excuse or reason, then why not just blame God for the wrong that you've done or that's been done or for the situation in which you find yourself? And James, as hopefully we're becoming accustomed to him doing, gives us in this part of the letter some very practical ways to think about this idea of it's not my fault and maybe we should blame God. And as we're used to seeing James do, he doesn't stay with one topic for very long. He was talking about being tested through trials and, and through suffering and, and, and circumstances in life. Now he moves to talking about sin. And, and, he, and he takes that idea of blaming God and immediately pushes back against it and reminds us of a consistent theme of Scripture which James brings out lots of consistent themes of Scripture throughout his letter. That temptation does not come from God, but instead temptation comes from our own sinful desires, and our sin leads to death. James, again, is not so much concerned only with the what or the why, but the how. How do we put our faith into practice? And when we find ourselves dealing with temptation, how should we look at God in that circumstance? And how should we find the way forward following him through that temptation and out of sin and into righteousness? When tempted, Jim, James writes in verse 13, should say God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he tempt anyone when I read verse 13 my mind immediately goes to James is a New Testament book of wisdom my mind goes to the Old Testament book of wisdom the book of Job and I think about in the first three chapters of Job all the many things that Job had to face whether it was loss whether it was suffering, whether it was physical pain or sickness, whether it was false accusations, and all of these things that Job was facing, God allowed. God allowed Satan, the tempter, the enemy, to bring these calamities upon Job. And yet more than once, in the very beginning of Job, this book of wisdom in the Old Testament says, in all of this, even with everything Job suffered, he did not sin by blaming God. So too, James says, when you are tempted, when anyone is tempted, let no one say, God is tempting me. For God is not tempted by evil, nor can he tempt anyone, but rather, each and every one of us, more often than not, we are tempted when we are dragged away by our own evil desires and we're enticed. As one early Christian, Cyril of Jerusalem, said, each of us is scourged with the ropes of our own sin. In most cases, the problems that we face and the afflictions that we feel, they are self-imposed. We bring them on ourselves. And we all have this struggle, we have this fight we have this battle going on inside of us with our own selfish desires and our own sinful desires, and they are what entice us, and ultimately, they drag us away from a right place with God. This teaching also takes away 
the old Flip Wilson excuse, the devil made me do it. Though we do have a very real enemy, and make no mistake, Satan, our very real enemy, does want us to be tempted. He does want to see us dragged away from a right place with God. He does want to see our lives destroyed, our families destroyed. He wants to see our effectiveness for the kingdom destroyed. Satan loves to see churches become ineffective because they turn away from God and they turn on each other. We have a very real enemy who is actively working against us. But even still, James says, more often than not, it is our own sinful desires, the evil inside of us, that entices us and drags us away. As I mentioned already this morning, and I've mentioned throughout our study of James so far, James is so consistent in his practical wisdom teaching as the Spirit speaks through him in sharing words that we find in other places in scripture consistent themes teaching that is found throughout the bible this idea of the the battle between righteousness and our own evil desires is one of those constant themes we find it throughout scripture we find it in the old testament we find it in the teaching of jesus and we find it in the teaching of other apostles one of those apostles is peter who wrote in 1 Peter 2, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, in other words, as, as those people who never quite feel at home in this life as you follow Jesus, as foreigners and exiles, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Sounds similar to what James has written. And I can identify, I'm sure you can too, with that internal struggle with sin. That, that all throughout my life, and it continues today, there are times where it is my own sin that is waging war inside my soul. And there is a battle going on for my soul. And I'm struggling, and, and that fire is burning, whatever it might be. It might be an attitude, it might be a thought, it might be an action. It might be something I'm weighing or considering, and there is a war, there is a battle going on inside. I'm sure you can relate. And that fight is something that even the apostles wrote, they, they would deal with their entire lives. But through Christ, through the strength that only God can give, through the faithfulness of walking in obedience and surrendering to him on a daily basis, brothers and sisters, we can make progress in this fight. We don't have to lose the battles. We don't have to lose the war. The war that's waging and raging inside of us for our souls because of sin, through Christ's strength, we can win those battles. And let me just share with you a couple of practical ways that I believe we can make progress in the fight against sin and our own sinful desires that wage war inside of us one thing to remember in this fight is that god is not fooled by our excuses we may fool a thousand people we might even convince them the twinkies made me do it right but we will never be able to fool god he sees everything inside and out he knows the deepest recesses of our hearts Everything we've done, we're currently doing, thinking, or will do, or think in the future. 
God is not fooled by our excuses, even if people are. And remembering that helps us live in that daily place of surrender to the one who sees all. Another way we can make progress in this fight is not judging other people to the point that we weigh their sins as heavier than our own. But remembering, rather than deflecting towards what everybody else is doing wrong, this idea of, of winning the fight through the Lord's strength of, of the, the war that rages inside of us in terms of sin is one of daily surrender, and that involves that, that hard work of introspection and self-evaluation and not falling into the trap of the what-about-isms, well, what about them, what about them, what about that person, but what about me? And what am I going to do with my own sin and disobedience? And then a final way, practically, that we can make progress in this fight against sin is to take the steps daily, if needed, of acknowledging personal responsibility, which means being willing to say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, I'm going to make things right, of surrounding ourselves with accountability. So there's taking personal responsibility, but there's also the important step of surrounding ourselves with accountability, with trustworthy people who we know want to see us succeed in our walk with Christ and want what's best with us, for us and will be willing to wound us as a friend to give us the wounds of a friend that are for our good and for the good of our faith, to round, surround ourselves with accountability with people who can help us see our blind spots that we can't see without some help. Take personal responsibility, surround yourself with accountability, and practice confession and repentance with God every single day. If you know there's a sin in your life, if you're facing the struggle, if you, if you are realizing that without being completely dependent upon God, you cannot win this fight, daily practice that confession. Say to God, I have sinned. And practice daily repentance, not just saying it, but turning away from it and saying, God, I want to walk the path of righteousness. I don't want to stay on this path of sin and evil, giving in to my desires rather than trusting you. And part of practicing confess, confession and repentance with God also means practicing confession and repentance with anyone you've wronged. Fathers, since it's Father's Day, it's a good day to remind us, to remind me too as fathers, that we can admit when we're wrong. And that it's a good thing for our families to see and others around us to see us say, I'm sorry, I messed up, I made a mistake. It's a good thing, fathers, for our families to see us apologize to our wives and even apologize to our children, even if we think they were more wrong than we were, to take that lead and that example and to be willing when we need to to say, it was my fault. I was wrong. I practiced that confession and repentance with you so that we might be in a right relationship with each other. It's funny, I shared that in the early service and my children who are on a group text said, since when is dad ever wrong? That's what they said. 
I said, look, I can't help that, okay? I can't help the fact that in our house, I'm always right. But I think that my children, I hope they would say that dad apologizes too. How do we make progress in this fight? We have to acknowledge the war, the battle that rages inside of us. And the fact that when we're tempted, each and every one of us is tempted and sometimes we are dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires. And, and those things lead us to places we do not want to go. As verse 15 says, after desire has conceived, then it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. There are two things about sin that James makes abundantly clear here. First of all, sin is destructive. Sin is destructive to the soul of the person. It is destructive to our very soul. But it is also destructive through its consequences to others, to people we care about and love, to our neighbors. Sin is destructive. It leads to death. And sin is also deceptive. Sin loves to hide in the shadows. And sin loves to disguise itself as something that is good or something that we need or a desire that's not so bad, it's okay. Sin loves to disguise itself. It is deceptive. As John Chrysostom wrote, when we're drunk with pleasure... We don't notice the destructiveness of sin, or at least we push it down and we ignore it, because sin is deceptive. But when the pleasure is extinguished and the bitter core of reality surfaces, we feel and know the dread of death, because sin gives birth to death. That's why oftentimes a person keeps the sin going. They keep stirring up whatever it is so that things never settle down and they never slow down and they never stop and reality never has to be faced. Sin is destructive and sin is deceptive. And in light of those truths and in light of the danger of sin, James says outright to his brothers and sisters who are scattered among the nations, who would hear the words of wisdom from God. Brothers and sisters, do not be deceived. Verse 16. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. And we're treating this verse by itself for just a moment because I see verse 16 as a bridge verse. It's a verse that brings us back to what James has just written, but it also is going to lead us forward into the last verses of this text. Do not be deceived, my brothers and sisters, he says, by thinking that when you're tempted to sin, that that temptation comes from God. Don't fall into that temptation and that deception, but instead realize that that battle is raging inside of you and that sin, when it gives birth to, to death, will lead you down that path of destruction. So don't be deceived in terms of sin. But it's also, again, a bridge verse that leads us forward to what James will say next. And don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters, about what God gives to us. God doesn't tempt us to sin. God does not bring evil upon us. 
but instead every good and perfect gift is what comes to us from God. So don't be deceived about what God does not do, and also do not be deceived about what God does and what God gives. Brothers and sisters, do not be deceived. But we live in a world full of deceptions, don't we? Coming at us from all sides and all directions. You may have heard this term before, a conflict entrepreneur. A conflict entrepreneur is a person who promotes conflict for profit. They are in the business of conflict, and they profit off of stirring up conflict and controversy and taking advantage of people and their anger and their fear and profiting off of anger and, and polarization and mutual disregard. We have conflict entrepreneurs all around us in 21st century America. Some of them are elected officials. Some of them are in the media. Some of them are people on social media. And sometimes we're guilty of being those who profit from conflict because it just makes us feel better if people will be mad with us, just like us. Conflict entrepreneurs. Sometimes those deceptions related to conflict even happen in the church and in a religious space. This last week, a group of us went as messengers to the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. And if you've read anything about the annual meeting this week, you've probably only heard some of the negative things that happened. But I will tell you that there was a lot of positive that took place. We, we commissioned 79 new missionaries just at this meeting who were sent out among the nations, and that was an incredibly worshipful moment to be able to be a part of that. We celebrated that in the last 10 years, more than 10,000 churches have been planted by our North American Mission Board. That's a wonderful thing to celebrate. We had some great times of worship and celebration and, and opening God's Word together. There were a lot of positive things that happened, but there was also a lot of negative and there was conflict. And listen, if you put 12,000 people together in a room and you have times for open mic... Okay, you're going to hear some knuckleheaded things, right? It's just going to happen. But every time it happens, especially in a setting where, where you're hoping to talk about the good things that God is doing, it, it can be deflating. It can be dis discouraging. It, it can be something that leads not to, to happy thoughts and good thoughts, but to negative ones. In fact, as we were sitting there in the meeting, there was one particular section where I was, was feeling very tense. And actually, there were a couple of people sitting behind me who thought they were talking a lot quieter than they were, and everything coming out of their mouths was hateful, and it was ugly, and it was spiteful. And, and in the middle of this section, my watch that I wear, I've never seen this before, but my watch popped up with this message, your heart rate is elevated. Your heart rate rose above 120 beats per minute while you seem to be inactive for 10 minutes starting at 4.04. I have never seen that. And uh, obviously in the moment, the, the, the tensure, tension was, was making my blood pressure rise. But in those moments, I'll tell you that it can be discouraging, it can be frustrating, 
but I'm so thankful for who we are as a church. Not that there's never been a situation here that made my heart rate go up, but as a church, I, I've thought for the last three years in a row when we've been at these meetings and some of these moments of tension have happened, I've thought, and our other messengers have said the same thing, that doesn't reflect what happens in our church. That's not what it looks like at South Tulsa. That's not how we talk about each other. And even if we have conflict, we seek to, to manage that conflict or to navigate through it as God is leading us and we trust in his word. And I'm so thankful when I'm around those kinds of things that, that I'm a part of a church like this one where that's not the case. In addition to being thankful, I'm also more committed than ever to our mission that I know and believe that God has called us together and has given us this mission, this commission, to share the good news about Jesus in our community and as God takes us out all over the world, wherever he might take us. And I'm committed more than ever to what we call our mission purposes, that when we gather and when we serve in ministry together, that we would encounter God, that we would, would, would do everything that in such a way that it points to God and points to his truth. That we would equip each other as people and as families to do the work that God has called us to do. That we would love our neighbors and serve our community well and continue to tap into God's heart for the nations as he sends us out with his good news. And we pray that God will continue to send more and more of our people out among the nations to do the work that he's called us to do. I'm more committed than ever to our mission, to our purposes, to being the kind of church, to being the kind of pastor that God has called us to be, has called me to be, and that we would be mindful of this warning, brothers and sisters, my dear brothers and sisters, do not be deceived, whether in light of sin or also when we think about who God is and how much he loves us. James says, everything that is truly good comes from God, including the gift of life and the gift of new life. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down to us from the Father of the heavenly lights. Now, some of your translations, rather than saying the Father of the heavenly lights, will use the actual literal phrase that we find in the Greek, the Father of lights. And that might sound a little bit strange to you as a name for God because this is the only place in Scripture we find it. This is the only place that the Bible calls God the Father of lights. But when you hear James saying that, when you read what James has written, it sounds like it has to be more familiar. In fact, if you read it in the Greek, it looks pretty clear that this is a title that God has been given, but we don't find it elsewhere in Scripture. So where does it come from? Well, remember that James told us from the very beginning of the letter that he was not only writing to believers who were scattered among the nations, but they were believers who had come from the 12 tribes. In other words, they were Jewish background Christians who were living among the Gentile nations around the Mediterranean. And he's speaking to them here this term, Father of Lights, this title for God, that most likely comes from Jewish morning prayers that the Jewish people would pray in James's day, in Jesus' day. There, there are two different prayers that, that, that Jewish people would say in the first century on a daily basis that actually use this phrase. 
One's called the Yatzer Or. The other is called Elohai Neshama. And I want you to just listen. I'm not going to put this on the screen. But I want you to just listen for a moment to the words of these Jewish prayers and how they seem to, to form foundation for what James was writing here about God in his letter. Blessed are you, Adonai, ruler of the universe, creator of light and darkness, who makes peace and fashions all things. In mercy do you give light to the earth and to all who dwell upon it. And in your goodness do you renew every day continuously the work of creation. Adonai, the soul that you have placed in me is pure, for you have created it. You shaped it, and you breathed it into me, and you preserve it deep inside of me, and someday you will take it from me, restoring it to everlasting life. May you shine a new light on Zion, and may we all soon be worthy of its radiance. Blessed are you, Adonai, the creator and the father of lights. But James, using this language of God, the father of the heavenly lights, knows something that the first Jewish people who were praying this prayer did not know. He, he knows as he's writing what the greatest gift is that God has ever given to his people. God is generous and he's loving and he's kind and a consistent theme throughout scripture another one of those consistent themes is that God is a loving father who loves to give good gifts to his children and James knows that the greatest gift that God had ever given was not a thing but was a person Jesus Christ and he's writing to his brothers and sisters and he's saying though you're being persecuted though you're suffering and though you are wrestling with your own sin do not be deceived and take hope the father of lights who blesses creation with life has also blessed us as his creation with new life through jesus christ and the father of lights who loves to give good gifts to his children never changes he is consistent and he does not change like shifting shadows like we read in numbers a moment ago god is not human that he should lie not a human being that he should change his mind and because god is consistent in his nature and in his character and because he loves to give good gifts to his children the greatest gift that he's ever given is that he chose verse 18 he chose to give us birth through the word of truth did he choose to give us physical birth physical life yes but far more important than that is that he chose to give us a new birth and a new life through the word of truth through jesus christ the father of lights adonai who created the soul that lives within us has given us himself, his son, so that we might not be condemned forever to lose the battle against sin, but that we might have everlasting, eternal life in him. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be the first fruits of all he created, that we might be among the first to experience the life that only he can give 
Paul wrote using the same language, the life that only God can give through his Holy Spirit. And as that life that Christ gives us is shining out in us, others will be able to see his salvation as well. I want to give a, a final word to fathers before we close this morning. As we think about our Heavenly Father, as Seth said, none of us as earthly fathers are perfect, and none of our earthly fathers were perfect. But our Heavenly Father is, and He does not change. And through the love that we experience from our Heavenly Father, my word to those of us who are earthly fathers today is that we might live in that perfect love of our Heavenly Father and be the fathers that God has called us to be. This is our moment. Men, fathers in the room, fathers watching online, this is our moment to be fathers and we will never get this moment back. We'll never have another chance to do what God has called us to do in this role that he's given us. And we have some great fathers in this church. So may we as fathers, as, as a family of faith here, continue to encourage each other and to drive each other forward that we would be faithful with the responsibilities that God has given to us. We need each other. And listen, our families need us to be the men of God that God has called us to be. Our families need us to represent our Heavenly Father and His love and His generosity and His righteousness and His character. Our families need us to be those kind of men in their lives for our wives, for our children, for our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and the legacy of faith that we pray God will build in each and every one of our households. Our families need us to be those kinds of fathers. And thanks be to God that our Heavenly Father has shown us what it looks like. And through the love and the generosity and the character He has displayed, we can be those kinds of fathers to those for whom we've been given responsibility. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. The evil desires that entice us and drag us away from the Lord don't come from God, but they come from within us, and they come from the evil one. Sin is destructive, and sin is deceptive. But our Heavenly Father, the Father of lights, loves to give good gifts to His children. Every good and perfect gift comes from Him, and He chose because he loves us so much, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. Would you pray with me? As we go into this time of prayer, I want you to just consider for just a moment, I, I asked the early service to do the same thing. We've said a lot of words today. But is there a particular word of truth that came from God's word that, that today as you heard it, you knew that it was for you? 
you knew that the Holy Spirit was speaking through that word of truth directly to your heart. If you know that there is something that, that God is speaking specifically to you, would you grab a hold of that? For these last few minutes that we have together in corporate worship, would you grab a hold of that? And would you say to God that you know it comes from Him and therefore it's true? And would you, as you grab a hold of it, make that commitment to the Lord to say it's more than just knowing the right thing or saying the right thing. Lord, I want to do the right thing and I want to put it into practice. No matter what the word is that, that, that God spoke to your heart today, I want all of us as we pray to remember the word love. That God loves us so much, he chose to make a way for us to be right with him. He chose to send his son to the earth. And his son chose the path that led to the cross, following the father's leadership, the father's hand. Jesus chose the path that led to the cross and he did not turn away from it. And he gave himself to make it possible that we could be the first fruits of salvation, that we could experience new birth and new life in him. Today, would you know that God loves you and would you be willing to take that daily step of surrender to give your life and say to him, Lord, I believe you are good I believe you love me and I trust you. From this day forward, I will follow you with all my heart. God, I pray that we have this last moment together, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would lead us. If there's anyone today that you are speaking to, to clearly take a step of obedience, Lord, would you give them the courage? Would you give them the wisdom to take the next step, not only in this moment, but going forward to follow you in obedience? Thank you that you love us. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the cross. And thank you for the new life that we have through Christ's resurrection today. In Jesus' name, amen.